You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we're going to be revisiting a topic that we discussed in great detail during season one. You might recall our three-episode series on waterfowl harvest estimation in North America. That was the series of episodes where we had Dr. Kathy Fleming and Dr. Paul Padding join us. Uh, today, we're going to be providing a bit of an update on a few things related to that harvest estimation process. And specifically, it's going to be an update with respect to the Harvest Information Program, HIP, certification uh, that most hunters, all waterfowl hunters should be aware of. So this is going to be an, uh, an episode that waterfowl hunters will want to listen to. We'll give you some updates, uh, give you some information on these updates and what's happening in that realm. To help us with this conversation, I'm going to welcome in Brad Bortner, uh, recently retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and Larry Reynolds, waterfowl study leader for Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Brad and Larry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Mike. Happy to be with you, Mike. Brad, I want to start with you. I've introduced you as retired from the Fish and Wildlife Service, most recently as the chief of the migratory Division of Migratory Bird Management. But I want you, I want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a bit more about what you've done throughout your career. I, um, I grew up on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and as a high school student, I decided um, I wanted to be a waterfowl biologist. I had the opportunity to work with Larry Heinemann, a um, waterfowl biologist for the state of Maryland. Um, as a high school student, he introduced me to banding waterfowl. And I went off to the University of Vermont and got myself a degree in um, in water, uh, wildlife biology um, and also a degree in forestry along the way. 
And after um, my first senior year, I um, was told about a unique opportunity at the Delta Waterfowl Research Station. So um, I went off and spent the summer um, at Delta Waterfowl Research Station, where I was introduced to all sorts of um, students and professors working on waterfowl on all sorts of different topics and became fascinated with it and got really interested in the idea of working on bioenergetics. So I went to um, Johns Hopkins University to work with a professor who was working um, with uh, tundra swans. Tundra swans at that point in time were a, a poorly studied species. And I spent a year at Johns Hopkins and then transferred to the University of Maryland, where I did a master's degree in the bioenergetics of tundra swans at um, Madame Mesquite National Wildlife Refuge in North Carolina. And after I um, um, finished that degree, I uh, was off to Iowa State to start a PhD on on uh, snow geese, but got offered a permanent full-time job with the federal government. And I decided, well, I would um, take that track in my career. And I um, started with the Fish and Wildlife Service. I worked a few years as a woodcock specialist for Fish and Wildlife Service um, at Patuxent Wildlife Research Center. And then uh, worked as a waterfowl biologist for them, um, conducting surveys and analyses of populations and banding uh, waterfowl. And after a few years of that, I became the chief of the section of population assessment, which is uh, the group at, um, at Patuxent that takes all of the status information about waterfowl and migratory bird populations and develops um, the science behind appropriate hunting regulations and analyzes the effect of certain hunting regulations. And then in 1992, I decided I um, would like to get away from Maryland for a while. So I uh, transferred to Portland, Oregon, where I became the regional chief of migratory bird. And I, I worked from 1992 to 2011 in Portland um, and covered all of the migratory bird issues in California, Oregon, Idaho, Nevada, and the Pacific Islands. Along the way, um, got very involved in, in quite a number of the joint ventures in throughout the region and worked on habitat issues uh, with our, all of our partners. And then in 2011, um, it was my turn to stand up and, and uh, take a leadership role uh, as the chief of the Division of Migratory Bird Management in Washington, D.C., in our headquarters office. And you covered most of the responsibilities of that here recently with your interview with Ken Richkus. But, um, you know, basically that, that position uh, covers the, the whole breadth of the migratory bird program um, in our headquarters office, sets policy and budget, and um, it works with international and, um, and national partners. Um, and so included trips to, to Russia, uh, Japan, uh, Mexico, and Canada uh, to meet with our treaty partners and many, many trips to, um, to Capitol Hill and even one to the White House to talk about migratory bird issues. 
Thank you for that introduction, Brad. So it's no stretch to say that throughout your career, you have worked on pretty much every aspect of migratory bird management. And so you are a natural person to be working on on the topic that we're going to be talking about. And we're delighted to have you and your expertise uh, joining us here on the podcast. So so thank you for that. And thank you for all the work that you've done over the years to help with, with this resource. Uh, certainly, I know I echo that on behalf of all of Ducks Unlimited. But anyway, I'd just like to take the opportunity to, to say thank you for all that, all that work that you've done. Uh, Larry, I want to go to you now and offer you the same opportunity to introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, the frequent listeners of the, of the podcast will, will recognize your name, will recognize your voice. You've been on with us a few times already, but nevertheless, uh, for those that may be tuning in for the first time, tell us a little bit about yourself and your career. Well, I came to the, uh, I came to the obsession with uh, waterfowl ecology and hunting a little bit later than Brad did. Um, I thought I was going to make a living playing baseball, but, uh, after two years of college eligibility, it became obvious that I was not. And at that time, the only thing I really cared about was, uh, ducks and duck hunting. Um, I was raised in Sacramento, California, in the middle of the central Valley. Um, I did my bachelor's work at university of California at Davis, um, uh, working with a, uh, a pretty renowned uh, waterfowl biologist uh, and professor, Dr. Dennis Raveling. And then uh, uh, in 1986, I moved to College Station, Texas, where I did my master's work uh, in, in wildlife bi- biology um, with another icon of the waterfowl industry, Dr. Milton Weller, um, developing waterfowl habitat from coal mine reclamation. And then in 1989, I moved here to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, to pursue a PhD in in wildlife and another master's in applied statistics. Um, I did some work on the population ecology of lesser scop, analyzing all of the banding and and harvest data. Um, I ended up not finishing those degrees, but getting an awful lot of, of really terrific work experience um, especially while working for the Waterways Experiment Station of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in Vicksburg, Mississippi. I participated in waterfowl-related projects in North Dakota, South Dakota, Indiana, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, um, and, of course, in, in Mississippi. And uh, um, at the point that I decided to um, to stop doing that work, uh, I did some diving duck research for the National Wild or the uh, National Wetlands Research Center in Lafayette, Louisiana. Before I embarked on my um, on my serious career, you know, all of us wake up one day and say, "Wow, we've done a lot of cool things in a lot of cool places," but maybe I better find twenty years to work if I'm gonna. Uh, entertain the idea of retirement. And so I went to work doing coastal wetland restoration with the Department of Natural Resources in Louisiana. I did that for six years before I was given the opportunity to come back uh, to waterfowl work full time. Um, I moved to the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries as the North American Waterfowl Management Plan Coordinator in 2005. And then in 2008, uh, I took over as the waterfowl program manager. And uh, I've been in that position since then. I have a feeling that's, uh, that's where I'm going to end my career. 
it's a delight to have you back on the show as well. Um, you and I have, have, of course, worked together for, well, close to 20 years now, getting close to that anyway. Uh, and so it's, it is, it's a treat to be able to keep in touch with you on a lot of these topics and appreciate your time. And so we have, we have a really neat lineup here with the two of you joining us because, of course, Brad, your experience, your career in the, in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on the federal side, and then, of course, Larry, yours with the state side, that partnership, as we're going to talk about as we go through this, between the, the federal government and the state governments in, in this harvest estimation, estimation process uh, and the particular topic with respect to HIP certification that we're all going to be focusing on today is absolutely critical, and I know people are probably going to get sick and tired of us talking about that collaboration as we go through this. But it's impossible to overemphasize that. You know, we can't stress it enough how important that partnership is between the states and and the feds when managing this this resource, which which does not recognize state boundaries, transcends state boundaries, transcends national boundaries. And so a perfect combination of people to join us and help us with this conversation. And so to get right in it into this, I want to reference the previous podcast, the previous episodes related to harvest estimation. Those were episodes 60, 61, and 62 from season one. Uh, If you haven't listened to those and you want to learn more about the details of of this process, I I certainly encourage you to go back and listen to those. We're not going to step through all of those aspects of it on this. We're only going to be pulling out the harvest information program process to talk about it in detail and some certain changes that are going uh, or that are being explored. Let's just say it like that. Uh, So to start out with, Brad, I I, want to go to you. And I I do think it's important to provide our listeners uh, a a review of the harvest information program and what it is and what Hunter's role is in it. So can you give us just a, a quick overview of the harvest information program? The Harvest Information Program is the is the beginning steps of um, how the Fish and Wildlife Service and the states estimate the uh, number of migratory birds, uh, game birds that are harvested during the hunting seasons. And this all came about um, in uh, in the early '90s when it was re- realized that the we're having difficulties estimating the number of of waterfowl hunters anymore because the system that they had used since the '60s had kind of broken down, and um, and those of us who were working at, uh, on the non waterfowl migratory game birds. Um, you know, had no sampling frame for estimating the um, harvest of this other non-waterfowl species. So between the states and the Fish and Wildlife Service, they got together and started talking about ways to solve this problem. And they came up with a a system called the um, Harvest Information Program. And since migratory bird um, regulations are under the purview of the federal government, uh, by way of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which prohibits all take unless authorized by the Fish and Wildlife Service, and the licensing aspects, which were um, you know, the, under the purview of the states, they developed a cooperative program called HIP, in which the states um, get collect the name and addresses and the response um, to some harvest questions from the hunters and then turn in that information over to um, the Fish and Wildlife Service. And the Fish and Wildlife Service uses those names and addresses and responses to those questions as a sampling frame for doing migratory game bird harvest estimation nationwide. And, you know, the, the important thing, the important part of this is that the 
the hunter's role is giving the name and, and addresses and answering those questions, which help um, the Fish and Wildlife Service conduct a, an effective and efficient survey. And those questions that you referenced there, they're the ones where if you are at a, uh, if you're buying your hunting license, whether it be online or whether it be at a point of sale with a retailer, um, they're the questions where they ask you, um, well, you guys may have to tell me, me, tell me on the exact language of this because I always get it mixed up. But they ask you if you, the first question is whether you intend to hunt migratory birds this year. Is that do I have that right? That's correct. Okay. And so then it goes, if you say yes, then it goes through a series of questions that ask you about your your harvest success in different groups of migratory birds the previous year, right? Yes. That's an idea to find out how successful you are. You know, the old adage, um, and I think Paul Padding um, referenced um, in in one of your episodes, 60 or 61, um, the old adage that 20% of the hunters um, – harvest 80% of the ducks. Well, it's, it, in my mind, it might even be closer to 10% of the hunters collect, uh, harvest 90% of the ducks. And it's finding uh, an efficient way to sample those people, all the hunters, um, of, you know, in an efficient manner so they can, um, uh, and those, with those questions help put people into different groups. Different groups that are then sampled uh, for for completing the two surveys, so, like there's three components of this overall harvest estimation process. Maybe from a course view, you have the har- harvest information program, which provides those names and addresses we, which we're talking about, and then you're selected from those uh, from that list to complete a couple of surveys, um, one or both of the surveys, that being the the wing survey and the hunter diary surveys, and the mechanics of those surveys and what they are and what those data, how those data are used were described in detail by Kathy and Paul in those previous episodes. So again, if you want to go back and listen to those specifics, encourage you to do so. But just want to be clear um, that the the questions that are being asked at that point of sale, uh, whether online or at a vendor, um, about the number of birds you harvested the previous year, those are not used to estimate the harvest. That Those are not the harvest estimates that you're providing. Larry, I want to ask you a question about that. Do you, do you find there's a bit of misunderstanding about that? And some people maybe think that when they're answering those questions, they're actually doing so? Those, those numbers are used to estimate harvest? Do you find some confusion in that regard? Uh, constant uh, and, and overwhelming sometimes, Mike. There is a uh, um, there's a view communicated to me by by many of our hunters about those hip registration questions and why the harvest data is absolutely meaningless because uh, many, if not most, of the uh, re- license <clears throat> retail license vendors don't ask the question or um, hunters, you know. They're asked that question right off the cuff, and so they don't have exact harvest estimates. and And uh, I have explained over the oh over the twenty years of my career in Louisiana that that those those hip registration questions are not the harvest data. and And if you would stop and think, they can't possibly be, because the harvest estimates used to be published on July fifteenth. Now they're published a little bit later because of the changes in our hunting regulation process. But most of our hunters don't even buy their hunting licenses until late July, August, or September. 
So how could those questions possibly be the harvest data when the harvest data were published before most of you bought your hunting licenses? That's when their eyes open wide and, and they actually begin to think a little bit. But it is one of the confusing aspects of HIP is that your this is the first step, as Brad explained, in estimating the harvest. And here you are asking people about what they harvested the prior year. Um, wh what's the points that I make with my hunters in the communication that I do is that more important than the questions about how many doves did you kill last year? How many ducks did you kill last year? Is the fact that you hunted doves or you hunted ducks or you hunted woodcock. Because as Brad explained earlier, we need a sampling frame to estimate the harvest of all of those species. But if we don't know how many, for example, Louisiana has 184,000 hip registered hunters last year. So 184,000 people expressed an intent to hunt migratory birds. Well, uh, if, if I don't know how many of them hunted woodcock or how many of them hunted doves, then my survey can be very inefficient if those hip registration questions are not asked and answered so that we can segregate those hunters into duck hunters, woodcock hunters, dove hunters. And uh, uh, when we talk about it, when I get a chance to, uh, to talk about it at public meetings, um, hunters come around pretty quickly. Now, when you say they come around pretty quickly, does that mean they, they understand, they, they begin to understand exactly how the harvest information program works? Is that, is that what you're saying? They, they understand what our goal is in asking, uh, those hip registration questions. I don't know, Mike, there is, there always has been, and there always will be, uh, distrust of government. And I, I think I'm safe to say that throughout my career, that has increased. And, and for the most part, it is very unreasonable. Um, and so just because hunters come around to understanding wh what it is, what information you're trying to get, and why you're trying to get it, oftentimes it doesn't make them any more cooperative. Um, especially in, in some groups of hunters where they just don't think anyone has a right to know what they harvest and, and when. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com.
Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation, united by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. Perhaps there is some greater understanding that can be achieved as if we're able to more effectively communicate or to share exactly why these data are so important and why the hunter's participation uh, at, at very high levels is so important. So let's talk about that. Why are these data important? Larry, from your perspective uh, as a state waterfowl biologist, you interact with other state waterfowl biologists through the flyway system. So just talk about the importance of these harvest data uh, from your perspective. Well, first and foremost, Mike, harvest data are required to maintain open hunting seasons. I mean, uh, as, as Brad hinted at earlier, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act closes all hunting seasons unless we provide the biological justification for opening them. And without harvest data, we're, we're shooting in the dark. Literally. And that provides one thing that every hunter is starkly aware of is that there are people, large numbers of people in this country that don't necessarily agree with with hunting wild animals. And they're always on the lookout for opportunities uh, through legal and other means to stop or curtail our hunting opportunity. And um, back in the, in the early 90s, when Brad described the breakdown of the sampling frame, that activity was, was going on on the basis of poor harvest estimates. We may be able to curtail or close hunting seasons due to inadequate harvest data. And so first and foremost, those data are um, critically important for us to maintain open hunting seasons. And, and so, Brad, now I want to get your perspective. What other uses are there for these for these harvest data? Larry, I will say that the, your answer there was was in lockstep with one of the things, one of the examples that that Paul gave us on the on, on another, one of those earlier episodes where he talked about that very thing, where there were some uh, some groups that were. Uh, we're kind of starting to put some pressure on and begin to think about, well, what justification do we have for some of these hunting seasons for some of these species? And so that was at that time, as you described, some uh, a key impetus for, for uh, kind of moving in this direction. And it's always going to be there. And so that it's, as you say, incredibly important for these, to have these data for that purpose. Brad, what other, uh, what other ways are these data used? Well, before I get into that, I'll, I'll just reiterate um, what Larry's point and your point there. Having been in the position of having to ask, answer that question, 
uh, or answer those questions um, in my in some of those jobs that I, I laid out for you. Um, it's very uncomfortable if I had not had at least harvest information um, to to um, to sit there and say yes, we are monitoring the. Uh, the number of hunters and the number of uh, birds that are harvested from those populations. So it, it's that is a very vital role for this information. But it's also it's also very important uh, information. It feeds into um, the development of harvest strategies. And currently, there are a number of species of game birds that uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the states through the Flyway Councils have developed uh, cooperative harvest strategies. And the whole um, idea there is that we would agree to the rules of the game um, or, you know, what the hunting regulation should be based upon those uh, outside um, uh, metrics before we get there. And so instead of having an annual debate on what the hunting regulations are, we've had the debate. We've said when, you know, harvest is at this level or that level, we will take action to either uh, liberalize or restrict so there's a very um, direct value to hunters um, by providing precise and accurate harvest information. Also, um, as I like to point out to people, that there are uses of that information for um, allocation of money for uh, habitat um, acquisition programs, um, habitat management programs. There um, also... Um, that the harvest information is um, available and displayed uh, on websites uh, where hunters can do a little internet scouting of their own and, and look at the harvest in their county, in their state, compare it to all the other counties in that state, or um, count, um, compare states to states or counties to counties across the whole country. There are also um, information available on the websites that um, we can provide links to that um, look at uh, the seasonality of harvest. Is, say you're planning a trip to go hunting in Louisiana and you want to know the best times of the year, you can pull up the information and look and see when their peaks of harvest are in, um, in Louisiana and in, in adjacent states. So there's um, a number of roles um, or uh, uses of this, uh, this information and that we wanted to let the hunters know how important their uh, participation is and how they benefit from uh, providing the information to the state and Fish and Wildlife Service. Brad, is there a, you might have mentioned this and I just blanked on it. Is there a, did you mention a website where you can find that data? I wasn't, I don't think I was aware of that particular application. Yes. Um, one of Kathy's websites lets you explore harvest data. And that's available at um, fws.gov forward slash harvest survey forward slash harvest dash vis viz. And you can look at, um, you know, average harvest numbers um, um, for any state in the country. You can look at seasonality and then you can look um, burrow all the way down to a county level. And um, it's a great tool. Um, and it, when you have a chance to look at it and your listeners have a chance to look at it, I'll bet um, people spend a lot of time taking a deep dive into uh, what are the patterns of, of, of harvest across the country, how their county compares to their home county or, you know, someplace where they have visited. 
and they can get in an argument um, with their hunting partners on, on what's the highest harvest county in the state. So um, I think it's a, I think it's a very useful tool for hunters to, and you know and they can understand how they're providing the information that allow this to happen. Absolutely. That's a great resource. I'll have to look into that. And and I want to drive home sort of a, a point here. Kathy and Paul mentioned this, but, you know, the value of that application that um, that you just described, where you can view harvest estimates across different states and uh, different times, and even down to the different counties, the reliability of those data depend on the participation of the hunters, depend on the participation of the hunters in the harvest information program certification, HIP certification that we're talking about, answering the questions, answering the questions correctly, uh, as as accurately as they can based on their memory, uh, but then also their willing and accurate participation in the surveys that they might receive as a result of being sampled from that HIP framework, those being the wing surveys and the hunter diary surveys. So hunters have an absolutely vital role. Without hunters, we can't get the data. It's that simple. And if we don't get quality data, then the inferences that we as managers can draw from that data or hunters could draw from that data based on the application you just you just described, well, it's it's quality is suspect. So again, it, it it's one of those things where hunters themselves determine the the value of the data. So Larry, I want to go to you now with the next question and let's just talk about uh, have you give our our listeners an understanding of the state's role in this in the harvest information process. We've talked gener- talked generally about it, but I but I want you to explain specifically what the state's role is in this and is it similar across all the states? Well, the end product is similar for all states and that is that we need to provide the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, a list of hunters' names, addresses, and uh, information about their their prior migratory bird hunting activity and their success. Um, that's the foundation from which the Fish and Wildlife Service is going to draw a sample of hunters to uh, participate in what you call the, the diary survey and then the parts collection or the wing survey. And that's the state's responsibility in this partnership. Um, each state has a responsibility to protect the privacy of, uh, of their hunter's information. And that's, that's one of the reasons that, that there's a, a state and federal partnership in this effort. And so the end product is the same for all states. But how we get there um, can be quite a bit different. Um, some states like Missouri lump hip registration with a migratory bird hunting license. Um, every hunter that wants to hunt migratory birds of any species in the state of Missouri has to buy a migratory bird hunting license and that includes the hip registration questions. They currently charge $6 for that license, um, which accomplishes a couple of things. Just like in Louisiana, we have a resident duck license that costs $5.50 for every uh, resident that wants to hunt ducks in the state. Um, and then we charge nothing for hip. Um, hip. Hip is free. But when you 
When you charge for something like a migratory bird hunting license that has HIP attached to it, people that don't intend to hunt migratory birds are not going to buy it. You know, even if it's a couple bucks, anybody that isn't going to hunt migratory birds isn't going to spend money um, for a HIP registration. Um, that's one of the issues in states like Texas and Louisiana that don't charge for the HIP registration. We often uh, get a number of hunters that don't intend to hunt migratory birds uh, registering with HIP. And as Brad mentioned earlier, that makes it a little more difficult to estimate the number of hunters that you have in your state. Um, some states do HIP registration completely online. Uh, in Louisiana, until this year, uh, you could get a HIP registration wherever you purchased your hunting license, either online or at retail license vendors. Um, and so there's a variety of ways that the states do HIP registration to certify their hunters to legally hunt migratory birds while collecting that information, names, addresses, and uh, which species of migratory birds and how successful those hunters were in, pri in prior years. Um, the states uh, put that together in a, um, in a different way. And if, if we haven't said it already, it's important for everyone to know that hunters are required to register with HIP in every state that they hunt. You know, you, you take a, a real worldly guy like Brad Bortner that may hunt in four or five or six different states, and um, he has to register with HIP separately in every state um, that he hunts. And, and in some states, it's, it's done a little bit different. Thank you for that, Larry. One thing worth clarifying here is that when we say hunters are required to get the HIP certification in all the states where they hunt, we're talking only about migratory bird hunters. They're the ones with that responsibility. That's, that's understood among the three of us, and hopefully it's understood among all of our listeners at this time. But just wanted to emphasize that. And if you are one of those migratory bird hunters, we thank you for your participation in HIP through the years. We thank you for your participation in any, in any of the other harvest estimation surveys, and we encourage your continued participation in those, in those surveys. With all that said, this is probably a good place to wrap up this episode. We have a lot more to bring you on this topic, and that's going to be the focus of episode two. And that's going to even include some discussions about some changes that are afoot with regard to the Harvest Information Program certification in some states. And that's important information. We want you to hear about that. So we're going to have Brad and Larry rejoin us for that particular episode. With that said, I'm going to extend a special thanks to our guest on today's show, Brad Bortner, retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and Larry Reynolds, waterfowl study leader for Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. We certainly appreciate their time and expertise. Additionally, and always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird for the great and tireless work that he does editing these podcasts and getting them out to you. And of course, you, the listeners, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your, your interest in these episodes, and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.